Um, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to be discussing the second part of a podcast that Robert Cunningham did. The name, the name of his podcast is uh, Every Square Inch, and he did a series on racism in America. Robert Cunningham is a Presbyterian pastor in, I want to say, anybody know? Lexington, Kentucky. True? Okay. So, um, and I had never actually heard of Robert Cunningham prior to a friend of mine sending me this podcast, but he said, dude, you need to listen to this. I listened to it. I thought it was just a brilliant, balanced, thoughtful, critical look at all sorts of things, and I really appreciate it. Um, and two weeks ago, um, we, didn't, we didn't meet last week because I was hiking in the Tetons, which was glorious, by the way. I recommend that to you. But two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of his um, series on racism in America, part one. And then today, we're going to do part two. And next week, I hope, we'll do part three. Who has, who has heard part one of that podcast? Okay, good majority of you. And who has heard part two? Okay, a whole bunch of you. Good. Still roughly the same number. Okay, now... Whether you have or not, I have about 20 copies of a transcript of it. So I thought it was really insightful. And I wanted, in order to kind of prepare for our discussion, I, I, went in, I, I tried to type it up. And I was terrible at that. So I asked my aunt if she would type it up. And she just listened to the whole thing and typed every word. So I have about 20 transcripts of it. If you, whether you've seen it or not seen it, I thought I'd make these available. Uh, there's not enough for everybody, but maybe for like clusters of people. And it might be helpful in this discussion for you to see it. There's a lot of ideas being communicated. I thought it might be useful. So, John, can you help give these to anybody? John and David, do you mind? Anybody that wants one, grab one. Um, and if not, no worries, but um, scatter them around. Be, be generous with those um, as folks have them. And what I hope to do... It's kind of similar to what we did last time. And I want to do a little bit of a recap of what he said. Although, if you wanted to just simply hear what he said, the best bet is just to listen to the podcast, right? But re, so beyond, more than just recapping it, I want to talk about it. I want to give you guys a chance to kind of enter into this and to consider um, what do we think about these ideas. And as we do, here's, here's just kind of a general perspective that I'd love you to have as we go through this whole conversation uh, some of the ideas that we talked about two weeks ago, kind of cr criticizing critical race theory, essentially, and some of the things that we're going to look at today, criticizing either the American experience or, in particular, the evang American evangelical experience, there might be some new thoughts in here along the way. And that's okay. And everything in life, no matter what it is, if there's anything at all that you do well, you used to do it poorly. Do you know this? Like, if you were a real good walker, you used to be a terrible walker. You didn't used to be able to walk. But there was this day that you took, like, one step holding on to your parents, like, coffee table, and then you fell down, right? And then you got better at it. If you know how to play a musical instrument, you used to be terrible at playing a musical instrument. No matter what it is that you do well, you didn't used to know how to write your name. Now you're probably tolerably good at that. But you used to have to trace dotted lines to, learn, to, to be able to, to learn how to write. And whenever we enter into something new, there's just space, okay? It's, there's room, okay? So can we just agree as we jump into this that you, somebody today might say something that's not true. You think it's true, but it's not. And that's okay. We are allowed, we, we have to be. It's an absolutely a necessity in life that we're allowed to get things wrong on the way to getting them right. And so when we have these kind of conversations about things that are that can be very, very tender, tender to multiple parties. We just want to make sure that we're giving each other room to kind of work stuff out. If you're never allowed to step out of line, then you're, not going to, you're never going to make any forward progress, okay? So whether it's you've been reflecting on part one, you're like, whoa, 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 I don't know about that. 
Well, that's okay. You don't have to know about that, but let's just enter into the conversation. Let's, let's just kind of agree that as in all of life, there's lots and lots of grace for one another and for ourselves to think something that might be true, that might not be true, to try it out for size and, and, and engage with one another instead of this quick vilification of everyone on all sides. You, you may have noticed that this notion that we are allowed to get things wrong and the way to getting things right is not uh, the pervading view in most of our social media engagement, right? As soon as you step out of line, you're dead to me, right? And we don't want to play that game that way. We want to really be able to think through, I had not considered this. Might it be? Could it be? That it's this? Well, not quite right, but, but you're, you're in the ballpark and that's okay. So let's kind of work together to get it. And, I, and I, even as I say all that, I'm not saying that from the person who has, like, I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff in here that's new. There are things in the world that I know and that I will hold to confidently. There's an awful lot, of more, lot more stuff that I'm like, I don't know, maybe this. And so let's do our best to live in that with grace to each other. Okay? So... Having said that, and are these things distributed? Are they scattered around the room? You all got some? If, if, you, if, you want, if you'd like to see the transcript, some of you, you know, when, when you're hearing the audio, it's just flowing by and you can't capture it, and it'd be easier for you to see something, just email me. My email is, I got lots of emails. Maybe the easiest one is, everybody at the church has the same email convention. It's tim at chsroanoke.com. Tim at chsroanoke.com. If you email me there, I'll be happy to send you all three transcripts um, if that would be, be useful to you, okay? So having said all that, let's go. What is, um, let's define a couple of the terms first and we'll kind of talk about it. Do you, does anybody recall Robert Cunningham talking about creaturism? Creaturism. Okay, anybody, can anybody give us, what is, what is creaturism? As he defined it, do you guys have any sense of this? It's kind of one of his kind of opening shots on this. And I think you'll find it in your notes if you look. But what is creatureism? Will? Sure. So Will says worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And it, what it lies, what it, what kind of, what it flows out of that is the sense that we not only do we worship the creature, but that the creature becomes the basis of all things. Right. So. The creature becomes the determiner of right and wrong, of good and bad, of the way things ought to be, the way things are. He says this, creatureism is the root-ism of every other form of ism, whether that's tribalism, judging other tribes by the standard of my tribe, colonialism, judging other cultures by the standard of my culture, classism, judging other socioeconomic classes by my class, sexism, judging other sexes by the standard of my sex, etc. All are manifestations of the fall and it's creaturism. Creatures are not meant, this is important, creatures are not meant to determine what is right and wrong, good and evil, to judge others accordingly. That's the creator's role. But as creatures, as, part, as full bore participants of creaturism, we do it all the time, right? So, so that's, that's an important thing to kind of, as we're gonna think, think, think this through. Um, what is creaturism and how does it play out? Um, what what is systematic or systemic sin? He goes. What does that mean? Systemic sin. We're gonna get, we're, we're not gonna play definitions all day long. We just want to get a couple on the table. Just built into the culture. Built into the culture. Okay. As as opposed to what? Individual, yes, right? Whoever said that, right? So Christian evangelicals, we tend to have a very individualistic focus, right? 
everything is my personal Lord and Savior. My, and, and that's true, right? I, I am individually sinful, and, I pers- and, and therefore I need an individual Savior. But the systemic is the idea that, well, hang on, it's not just that I'm doing bad things, but that there's systems that are bent in a particular direction, that whether you're trying to be evil or not, as long as you're going with the flow of that, that perhaps evil will result. Is that, is that, does that feel like a fair definition? Yeah, go ahead, Jesse. I, can barely, I couldn't tell it was you for a second. Um, so we're not distinguishing systemic um, as something that's codified in law and is like a governmental or formal system, but we're saying that it's something that can be unwritten and almost undetectable culture sure. as, as created by the people that made that. Yeah, so Jesse's, Jesse's asking the question, when we talk about systemic sin or systemic evil, does it, is it, does it or does it not need to be codified into law? Does it need to be the official law of the land, or might it be the more unofficial sense of rules by which things, things happen in any given culture? And I think that we would say that systemic, things can be systemic without having the force of law behind them, right? So it could be even like in, in, a, in a much smaller local unit of a family, there's no laws Right? There's no like, legislative action that governs the way my family functions, but there are systems. There are expectations and cultures and norms and mores, and so it could be, it could be either. And, and sometimes things that have the force of law, um, you know, that gives the government the right to coerce actions. But even once the, if those things are removed or changed, as in many times they have been changed, right? The American legal system today is very different, vastly different than it was 200 years ago. And yet from pre-law or post-law, cultural norms are very, very powerful. It's, it's a little bit like, um, was it A Few Good Men? Is that the name of that movie? Uh, with Tom Hanks and Jack Nicholson. And, oh, what did I just say? Tom Hanks, yeah, totally different. I was thinking of Tom Cruise. Where they, they'd have that scene about how there's no rules about when you go to the chow hall or something. Do you remember that? There's some scene like this, and, and yet you do it because everybody does it. And so we're, we're absolutely influenced by the unofficial stuff as well. And those things can be, there can be a, a, a systemic evil to that, for sure. Does that, is that agreeable to you, or would you push back on that? Uh, I don't know. I think that um, there's a lot that is... Maybe a cultural norm, but isn't practiced by everyone. So it's difficult to say that we all participate in a systemic evil just because it's there. Oh, okay. So, so it's great. So Jesse's saying, well, hang on a second. Things can be systemic, but it doesn't mean that everybody participates in it. I totally agree. So things can be systemic. There are, well, just for that matter, there are, there are laws that everyone doesn't obey, right? And there are laws that everyone doesn't disobey. So the fact that something is systemic does not mean you have 100% cultural buy-in. Doesn't, it doesn't mean that at all. But it may mean that there are things that have a trend in a direction. So we would, we'd want to be careful if we say that systemic sin exists. I, wouldn't, I would not argue at all that that means that you are a participant in that. Although you may be, and so might I. But I don't, I don't know that that's the case. Stuart? Um, yeah, doing the... A year through the Bible and uh, the Bible Project, and we're in Chronicles right now. And I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? So this whole idea of systemic sin or corporate sin, and, and the law being the law was still the law back in you know pre-Jesus, and that that the, the culture would veer from the law to the point where they were even surprised to find the law. That's right. You know? And yet strayed, and then even though the law of the land was still the, the law, the whole culture had shifted from that law. That's right. You know, and that 
happens obviously within uh, evangelical Christianity uh, over the last 400 years or whatever. Um, you know, just because it's in the scripture, you know, we've misinterpreted, we've applied improperly, just like the Jews. Did. Yes, absolutely. So, so, so we. This is. These are all helpful things that that there's there's an awful lot of flexibility to all of life. So there's the there's the official law, and we don't all keep that. Then there's the unofficial cultural pressure, and we don't all keep that for good or or for ill. I think we said here a couple of Becky, you raise your hand. No, but you could if you want to. Okay, I think we said a couple of weeks ago that generally speaking, there have been four great historic um, ethical imperatives that Christians have recognized through the centuries. Right? Do you remember? Do you remember this? Remember what they are? The four great big ethical obligations that we've we've tended to care about. Do you know this? Do you remember? Josh, could you do it real loud? Uh, one of them is sexual ethics. Sexual ethic. One of them is care for the poor. Care for the poor. One of them is care for life. What, what, you got what, say it again? Care for life. Particularly like unborn life. Yes, that's right. Uh, the other one would be justice. Yeah, issues of injustice and oppression. Very good, okay. So, and we've, we've tended to break these things down into the, the right and the left. And on the right, we really care about pro-life and sexual ethics, right? Protecting the most vulnerable among us and maintaining a Christian sexual ethic, whether that's, you know, no sex outside of marriage and opposition to uh, gay marriage. Any of these, there's all kinds of iterations of it, but sexual ethics and pro-life. And then on the left, there's a bit tend to be more of uh, a focus on caring about injustice and, and poverty. But the reality is that all four of those things are richly biblical, and we should care about all four. But when push comes to shove, we kind of split the thing in the middle and say, I'll take these two, and you take these two, and that's kind of the way we've, we've divided it. But here's the thing. Even if you're living in the subculture that picks, pick, it doesn't matter which side you go. Let's say you pick the conservative side, the right side of the wing, and you're going to say, that, yeah, we, we, we really care about sexual ethics and pro-life issues. I think a lot of evangelicals that go, end up having abortions. And a whole lot of evangelicals are violating the Christian sexual ethic. So it's not an official law. It's just kind of our cultural law. We see it's revealed in God's scripture, which in some sense, I believe me, I understand that makes it more official. I'm just saying it's not legislated. And yet we disregard that all the time, right? So whatever the pressures are, there's all kinds of, not freedom, but just the reality is that we violate things all, all over the place. And sometimes we violate things in a good way by not going with the peer pressure to mistreat people. But sometimes we violate them in, in a really negative way, okay? So when we say systemic, we don't mean you're lockstep trapped into it, but it does mean that there's this general trend, okay? So we've got creaturism. We've got uh, systemic evil. Those are two terms I wanted to kind of just kind of get in your mind because they undergird what we're about to talk about, okay? So if you look, if you, if you follow through Cunningham's saying, if you really read any broad stuff on this, ultimately I hope that you will get to the point that you're able to stop and reflect on America's own history and the church's participation in that history. There is a fantastic series. I wonder if any of you have seen it yet. There's a book and there's a... And when I say fantastic, by the way, it doesn't mean I agree with every word of it, but it's good to read things and to listen to things with which you disagree. But there's a series put out by a guy named Jamar Tisby called The Color of Compromise. Has anybody seen or read or heard The Color of Compromise? Man, just very, very few of you. Was it? Did you see? Did you read it or watch it, Nick? Okay, reading the book. Anybody? Has anybody watched it? Is it Amazon or Netflix? Where did I see it? Amazon. So if you have Amazon Prime and you use Amazon Prime Video, I would really encourage you to go through and, and to watch this because what he does, and I haven't read the book, but I, 
It's the same guy that wrote it. Um, he makes the case for the history of how this has worked out. When we, when we say, when you've heard the, the, the accusation that there has been in the United States for a long, long time, systems, inherent functions that have led to devastating, injurious, unjust, grievous consequences for the African-American community, I think that's a pretty objectively, objectively provable point. Um, so, Nick, we have, I know we didn't talk about this, but was it, how far into the book are you right now? Like two chapters in. Okay, so you're just early on. So is there anything, what I want to do, what I'm hoping we might do is just kind of prick people's minds to begin to think, okay, maybe there's more to this than I thought. So are there any examples from Tisby's book that you feel like, ah, oh, I didn't know about this, or maybe you'd heard about that, but you think illustrates how we've actually built some of these systems into our country that we should be thoughtful of? So the first part, what he, he starts the book with uh, the bombing of a church in Birmingham where four girls were killed. What? And he, at this point, it's not talking about so much uh, formal social constructs, but the idea that when one of the local um, white Baptist uh, pastors spoke out against this, the guy was essentially run out of his church. And so there was this idea that even if you spoke out against something that uniformly should have been, like, spoken out against, the guy was um, treated poorly because of the social construct of, well, essentially treating them less than, less than human, less than you should treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. Sure. And that's early. As the book goes on, could, you hear, could everybody hear Nick over there? Ish? No? Okay. So I'll, I'll try to recap you then. So what Nick was saying, in the book, he, he tells a story of, a, of a, when a black church uh, was bombed. This is like in the 60s. This is back a long time ago. When a black church was bombed and a white pastor spoke out against it. So it's a white pastor speaking out about the evil of a black church getting burned. He was run out of town because he was coming down on the wrong side. Because the whole, everything was framed in an us versus them kind of paradigm. And if it's us versus them, you better not support them, even if they desperately deserve your support and in this moment. And that'd be one example, of, honestly, of many, of how the church had, had, has, is, I don't know how you want to frame that, um, decided to turn a blind eye to certain injustices in favor of others. Is that a, is that a fair recap? Okay, good. Becky, you read it too. Any, any particular insights from that book that you would throw in there as we're trying to get this, get our head around some of the examples of systemic injustice? That's when they started kind of reaching out to the slave population evangelically. Like, a note happened signed something that said, if you're baptized in the church, you still don't get to be free. Do you understand that? So they would sign, like, okay, I'll be baptized knowing that it doesn't mean mine. Yeah. So, so what Becky's referring to is, is we're doing, so the Christian church, this is early, this is even pre-American you know, pre Revolution, there's the opportunity, we have all of these African slaves and they don't know Jesus and we know that apart from Jesus, all people are lost, so should we share the gospel with the African slaves? I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't because if we do, they might read the Bible and start to get some really weird ideas that they're made in the image of God. They might even read the passages in the New Testament that say, if you can gain your freedom, do so. And that's risky. 
so maybe we shouldn't share the gospel with African slaves because, God forbid, they might want to be free. They might learn and grow and recognize their infinite dignity before a holy God. But we better not. I mean, we, have, we should. We have to. That'd be terrible. That'd be very unchristian. So here's what we'll do. We'll tell them about Jesus, but we'll make them sign a document that affirms that they'll never try to not be slaves. Okay, do you see how there's something really pretty pretty distorted about this kind of thinking, but they're working out a practical solution from a very corrupted view and thereby end up creating systems in that, okay? I've, uh, I used to be part of an organization that did, I think, a very excellent job of hiring um, African-Americans for ministry. We really, we wanted to have um, our staff broadly representing a variety of ethnicities. And so we really, we did a good job, I think, of seeking to hire African-Americans and uh, white people and Asian people, whatever. You know, we wanted to have a broad, rep- broad range of people represented. But here's the thing. When we would get our applications, we would tend to find people who had the rich, robust the- theological training that we required and needed disproportionately among the white population and less prevalent in the African-American population. Okay? So you could stop and you could look at that and say, well... I mean, what do you want me to do? We're going to hire people that have the best theology that have thought this thing through. And it's not at all that black people can't have robust, rich theology. But it was the case that fewer did. Okay? Now, so freeze frame on that. And if you're uncomfortable with that, just stay with me for one second. Do you, does anybody know historically why that might be? Why might there be fewer people in the African-American population today that, that have developed the rich, robust theology that we tend to value in our, in our particular culture? Any, any, any stab in the dark on why that is? It's because, yeah, Lily? Um, I mean, first comes to mind the lack of educational institutions, seminaries that are, you know, segregation. Absolutely. Because you guys, we would literally, I mean, this is not long ago. This is within, your, within many of your lifetimes. We, 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 whoever we are, the white evangelical leaders of these seminaries would not permit people of African descent to attend the seminary. You couldn't come. You weren't allowed to come. And when they, Tisby talks about this in his, in his book, the first time that sem, these seminaries began to be integrated, the deal was, okay, just listen to this. This is, this is like not 50 years ago. You can come to our seminary and attend our classes, attend our classes, but you need to sit in the hall. Literally, okay? So you can sit in the hallway and over here, but we will not deign to open the door. You literally can't come into the room to sit here and take notes with your students, but you can sit out in the hall. You can probably pay the tuition too, but you got to stay in the hallway. Can you imagine, what are the implications that don't you think that if you're making those sorts of decisions, then there's going to be some downstream consequences where that community hasn't had the richness and the legacy and the history of theological development? And then, and then, to add insult to injury, we can stop at that moment and say, well, I guess black people don't have as good theology because maybe they just aren't given to having good theology. Or maybe we made them sit in the hall when we even allowed them to attend our schools at all. This is the United States. This is the white evangelical church. So we've got to slow the train down a little bit and, take, and be a little bit more self-reflective on that. Yeah, doctor. Uh, if, uh, if you want to go to the last five years instead of 50 years ago and go to the last five years and, and 
look at the graduation rates of black Americans when they go to a predominantly white college, which is less than 40%, and look at the graduation rates when a black American goes to a predominantly black uh, university or college. Uh, twice, more than twice that. And, and there's something happening with what we call integration shock. When, when a black American has spent the first 15 years of their life living in a culture that has sent them a little voice saying, you're not good enough. Um, if they go play with white people in college, that voice gets very, very loud. If they go to a black universe, university, they don't hear that anymore and their success rate is doubled. Hmm. So that's happening not 50 years ago, but that's a remnant of what happened hundreds of years ago. Hmm. Yes, okay. So what Don is saying, and I, this is a statistic, I had, not, I had not heard that, but Don is saying that when African-American people attend, you know, typically white universities, their graduation rate on average is 40%, but when they attend HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, it's double that. Okay, now that, I, that's not, an, I'd, not I'd never seen that before, but what, you, what, what that suggests when we look at that is there's something about the culture that we've created that has some, that has additional barriers that we may be unaware of, but that makes it genuinely more difficult for people coming from the black culture to kind of integrate into this. And you're suggesting that one of the things is maybe that there's all these subtle, un, you know, subtle to us perhaps, these subtle, subtle clues that say that you're not good enough or you won't make it here. And that self, that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Is that, is that a fair recapture? Okay. So these are the sorts of things. And then Don, you use the word remnant that there are many voices that would say today, like, well, no, no, all that stuff's old news. None of that's true anymore, okay? Well, and it may be that none of that is overtly true anymore, but it's, it's a little bit convenient to be where we are right now and to be able to say, like, I have all of these things that I've benefited from generations of wealth accumulation, generations of, of uh, uh, valuing certain things, and then to say, well, no, I built this all myself. I mean, the, the truth is, you guys, when Kelly and I bought our first house, we, had, we bought our first house with a $30,000 down payment that we were granted by her grandfather who had a ton of money. And he was just trying to, like, you know, lower his, his uh, whatever you call it, you know, inheritance tax or whatever that's going to be. And so he just gave money to all his grandkids. And so we had thirty grand, without which we never could have purchased our home. Right, the generational wealth realities are—they're are, a thing. And so, if it's education, if it's wealth, and I have a job and I work hard, but I would not have when I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, like I was making like seven bucks an hour or something as a college graduate. And we didn't—we could not have accumulated thirty thousand dollars for a down payment, but we had a wealthy relative who did and who, who gave it to us. And not not everyone has that, and certainly not every white person has that. But on average, there's an enormous amount of historic reality that bleeds forward into today's world, right? And that cuts both ways. That can go for good or for bad, as we think about this. Yeah. In my case, uh, when I bought my first house, Uncle Sam co-signed a loan for me up to yeah. the Navy. Yes. Okay, so this is otherwise, the thing. Otherwise, there was, there was no... There was no family wealth there. Yes. Okay. So, so John says when he signed his, got his first home, Uncle Sam signed the, co-signed the loan. And you were in the Navy. And if you weren't in the Navy, you wouldn't have had access to that. And it's, 
possible, but I wouldn't be surprised if the same loans may not have literally been available for African-American people. Okay, in that, so in that situation, there were. Okay, so, so there, there are benefits that would be broadly available to all. What we, what we have seen historically, though, and, and uh, what's, we'll go back to um, Robert Cunningham. He talks a little bit about, about redlining. So let's kind of shift over to that. If you've got the book, I don't even know, I mean, the, the, the transcript, you might skim down to see him talking about redlining because this is a really important uh, concept. Anybody want to give us a quick summary? We'll use the phrase redlining. What, Stuart, you want to give us that real loud? It's uh, the banks, financial institutions used to uh, grade the ability to make loans based upon, you know, a ge- geography zip codes of particular areas, and they drew red lines on these maps, and if you were in a red line area, basically, they would not loan money or federally insured loans and things like that inside these boundaries, and they generally came across by racial uh, not a hundred percent, but largely by racial, the black neighborhood. You weren't going to get a loan in this redlined area. That's right. You know, that was where you would not get a loan, or if you did, it was going to be super subprime and you have to pay usurious interest. That's right. And so you're looking at if when the, it was it was it was this wasn't culture, right? This wasn't just kind of inclination. This wasn't prejudicial on an individual basis, but the the law not only allowed, but in some sense required bankers to discriminate against loans. They would not give loans to people who lived in zip codes, and those zip codes were very often defined simply by the racial makeup, not even just your economic makeup. So there could be poor white people who had a greater chance to get a loan than people than, than, than wealthier black people. And when that's the case, when you're not able to own a home, owning a home is one of I don't know if it's the number one, but it's got to be in the top-ranking ways that we build wealth in America. Because your rent's not going to somebody else. You're actually you're paying money, but you're accumulating it. And then you pour it into the next house. You pour it into the next house. And it's a way to accumulate wealth. So we had systemic legal decisions to make that impossible for African Americans to, to enter into that system. And that has multi-generation implications. That went on into the 70s. I mean, this stuff really, when you talk about... It hasn't been that long ago. I mean, that was an institutional thing that was in place in the 70s. I mean, when the Fair Housing Act and things like that came along and helped eradicate that. But you do know, obviously, it still kind of the ripple effects of that continued. So you talk about, I mean, I, I was born in 1964. So I was 10 years old, you know, when this stuff finally was being pushed aside. Yeah. And, and, the, and, it, and it doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't flip over and stop being the case because that wealth that could have accumulated didn't accumulate. You saw I was in land development for a while as an engineer early on in my career. And and, uh, we would read uh, uh, deeds, and I was in Charlottesville, and we would read deeds and covenants of subdivisions that were on the books right now. I mean, these these were things, and, and technically the deeds... And the covenants of the subdivision said, you cannot sell your house to a black person. You cannot transfer this property. I mean, this stuff was still written. I mean, it, it was largely ignored, but it was still there. Think about that. I mean, and even, even if it is being ignored, it demonstrates, right, it's, it's, it's still there. He, meant, he mentioned this, and I don't, I don't have access to it quickly. You might some, find it, but very similar to that, Stuart. He said that basically when the redlining stuff was... When that legislation was being written, the the, uh, the official language was something like, 
you can't, yeah, this, you can't sell this house except for a person for whose race it was designed or something like that. There's some kind of a language of, hey, this, this is a white neighborhood, this is a black neighborhood, everybody stay where you're supposed to be. And as you could imagine, the white neighborhoods are going to be wealthier, the black neighborhoods were l- less affluent, and there were, it was a rule that you couldn't ever jump in, right? It's crazy. Way back, yeah. If you look at the red lighting map for Roanoke, it's still consistent to today. You like look at facts, like the neighborhoods are still divided by the red lighting neighborhoods. Yeah, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine. He said that, and he didn't. He's going to send me a link to it, but I haven't seen it yet. But there's apparently some some map system that you can go online and you can see like all the neighborhoods, like every, I think everywhere in the country, broken down by ethnicity and whatnot. And I would imagine you'd see those same things. So let's let's do this. Let's shift from okay, Lucas, and then we're going to make a shift. Go ahead, bro. Well, I was just going to say. Yes. Like that. And, and like, yes, this has a component of wealth, but it also has this component of if you're changing homes, if your life is in flux, then like it's much like you're much more susceptible to be getting into things that like other communities that like are very rooted like aren't getting into, and like that starts to bleed into like the like the crime rate and like all these different factors that don't really get talked about, and it's like a little icky because yeah. these communities are riddled with crime, but like they have like psychological factors that are not really yes. So what Lucas is saying is that when we talk about home ownership, we're not merely talking about, uh, we've been talking about home ownership through the lens of wealth accumulation, and that's a legitimate aspect. But Lucas is saying home ownership actually has a host of benefits beyond um, wealth accumulation, including cr- the creation of stability. And there's a lot of just kind of downstream implications of that. So yeah, amen, totally agree. Okay, now we've been talking big, broad national America and big, broad government things, but let's just bring it home a little bit. Okay, there's two books. If you're interested in the Roanoke experience of this, two books that I would maybe cons- you know, encourage you to consider reading. First, you guys, some of you know Beth Macy. You know her? She's a local author. Uh, she re- she's the author of Dope Sick. She's the author of a number of different books. And um, my, ooh, sorry, my mind is blanking. What is the book that she wrote uh, about? Truvine, thank you. Kids in the Circus and whatnot. Kelly read it. It was just heartbreaking to her. So true. you might want to pick up Truvine. When Kelly was reading this, she just kept remarking like, oh my gosh, this was right here not very long ago. Have you read Truvine? Has anybody read Truvine? Okay, anybody feel like, Helen, do you have any sense or anybody here? Quick, a quick Truvine snapshot that folks might, might cock people's head. Get, Teresa, you got anything? Somebody want to go? Yeah, you're going to go real loud, Christine? Um, just one that jumps off the page because this photograph in black and white is a gathering of women on the front in front of Hotel Roanoke, and they're gathered for a KKK rally. Right here. Yeah. And do you, do you have any sense of when, when that was? 1930-something. Uh, okay. Something is in the 30s, 40s. Yeah. And I don't know the, the date, but it was illegal here locally for a black person to go to a white church or a white person to go to a black church. I think it was the 40s. In the 40s in Roanoke. It was, elite. It was a crime to go. Think about that, you guys. That wasn't that long ago. Um, we, I got a friend named Charles Wilson. We've maybe mentioned him to you. He's, a, he's planning a church, a multi-ethnic church in Roanoke. Solid dude. And he took the fellows and I on a tour of Roanoke 
uh, that was really eye-opening. And it, like, it was, it was a drag. We met, do you know there's a bridge right by the train station, kind of goes over the tracks, and there's a Martin Luther King um, monument there. And we kind of began there, and he, we walked around, and then we drove around, and he just showed us how essentially, and I, I'm, I'm fuzzy on, on these details, but not that long ago, like 70s maybe? 60s, that essentially there was, a, there was a healthy, successful, stable, Lucas, black community in this, in this part of Roanoke, um, but the city just wanted the land, and so they just took it. Yeah, right? And so, exactly right, exactly right. So the Berglund Center was built, and then the, the plan was essentially we're going to take this land and we're going to give you new land. Everything's going to be fine. It's just a kind of a relocation but in fact, the relocation really never occurred. If you ever drive by, if you're ever on, just off of 581, it might be Orange Avenue, there's this little like ramshackle graveyard right there by a hotel with like a tottering fence. It's just a mess. That was what sort of remains from an African-American cemetery right there. And we just basically like, yeah, you know, sorry about that, but we need this land. And then we ended up building the Berglund Center. The 581 comes through and the, the uprooting took place, but then the rerouting never did. And it was devastating to that community. Their, I mean, they just took, took over their homes. And he showed us one of the strange, I don't know if you ever noticed this, if you ever walk around down there, there are these cement steps that lead to nowhere. There are these foundations of homes that used to be there and they just got raised, like just, just completely destroyed. And you can see like the, the, the remnant foundations of a successful black community that were like, yeah, but so what about that? We need the land. That was, that's Roanoke in, in our lifetime. Stuart? Um, they, when they recently were going to build that Costco on the other side of Best Buy and everyone got all excited, that whole thing came back, that whole <coughs> came back. And that neighborhood, basically, uh, because of what happened in that time, that is what sort of shot down the city going into that area now to, to, huh. to help acquire that land. And it, it all, because of all of that and the institutional memory, Yes. What kind of shut down that? So there's a sense of that. So are you saying that in a in a positive way? The shame over what we had done prevented them from doing it again. I, I don't. I didn't know anything about a cost. Negative, because I think there's a lot of people that that were there that wanted to see the Costco come in there. Even the people wanted to sell their land. Oh. But the the seeds of that distrust are that's, still there yeah. in that neighborhood, and um, that's what ultimately led to that thing being demised. Because a lot of those people were. A victim when the 581 came, they were still they, they, there's there was some remnants of that that still shows up today. So you use an interesting phrase you're about the seeds of mistrust. Okay, has anybody ever read the book The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks? Lack? Lacks? Single? Lack? Have you, who's read this book? You guys, it's fascinating. If you guys have ever done, if anybody's ever done any kind of scientific research, you may have in biological research, you may have used what are called HeLa cells. You know what I'm talking about? Josh, what's a HeLa cell? It's a strain of human cell that is immortal because of the mutation in it. It's from a woman named Marietta Lacks, and it's used in thousands of labs across the world without her or her family's permission because of the great impact it's had on health research. Yeah, okay, so you, there's no way you heard that. So Henrietta Lack was a woman who lived, an African-American woman who lived in Baltimore, um, and she essentially she had cervical cancer, and her cervical cancer cells were harvested. What, what cancer does, it just keeps reproducing itself. And so her cells have been, 
they're immortal. You can keep reproducing them, reproducing them, reproducing them basically forever. And the thing I read is something like if you added up all the HeLa cells, and a cell weighs nothing, all the Henrietta Lacks, like literally her body has been reproduced to the extent that it would have weighed 25 trillion tons or something. Just some unimaginable amount of reproductive work. But she was from Baltimore, Baltimore area. And if you know anything about the black community in Baltimore, there's a long history. Talk about seeds of mistrust. Because literally like the U.S. government, the... uh, these agencies would conduct experiments. Like there's a famous, just let's look it up. Black, just, just Google African-American syphilis Baltimore. And there are these horror stories of the medical community taking advantage of black people because they could get away with it. They could just get away with it and allowing black people to die from syphilis as part of these kind of controlled experiments without their knowledge or consent. And what the result of that is that the black community in Baltimore has tended to be very mistrustful of the medical community because they've been so terribly burned. And that phenomena, there's lots of opportunities for that phenomena to get played out. If you have injured me and taken advantage of me and used me, then I may not trust you even when you're making decisions for my good, when you're making opportunities that could be good. I might, I might still be wary and leery of you. And that's, that's the sort of a thing that we have, we have seen. Okay, So The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lack, it's a fascinating book about lots of things. It's not entirely about the racial kind of implications it's, it's absolutely fascinating, but there are parts of that book that are just really horrifying, right? Or you might read True Vine and also have, have things that will like open your eyes. You might read The Burning uh, about the Tulsa, Oklahoma community, of uh, the, the wealthiest, most thriving community of African Americans in America is in Oklahoma, was in Oklahoma, and it got burned to the ground and completely decimated. These things have multi-generational implications that we are dealing with right now and we may be dealing with for a long time and that, and that the white people in, in positions of authority or in th- positions of prosperity really need to grapple with. Uh, Brett, you just mentioned to me a book that I had not heard of. Tell, can you just give us a quick one-minute summary of the other book you mentioned? Uh, yeah, uh, Root Shock. Uh, we're just talking about urban renewal and Roanoke plays a pretty prominent role in the book. Um, and I think that that book is referencing back to an article that was written in the Roanoke Times in 1995 uh, that was just kind of a uh, epic tale of what has happened in Northeast and Northwest Roanoke and Gainesboro, and I think everybody's kind of referenced that today, but um, it's, it's pretty shocking just the, the amount of uh, long-term damage done to the black community here just in Roanoke. I mean, right across Shenandoah Avenue. So, yeah. Um, What's it's the name of it? Root Shock. Root, like R O O T S H O C K. And all of this was done, you know, in the name of progress and, and with good intention, I think, originally. But it seems like, you know, money and, and racial bias just quickly, quickly changed the course of everything that was originally intended. So, it's, it's pretty, pretty crazy. And it's probably the case that we could find stories like this in community after community after community after community across. It's not that you just happen to live in the worst place in the world, Roanoke. It just happens to be this is where you do live, right? But these sorts of things have been going on for a long time and have broad implications, okay? At which point, here's what happens, though. Now you're like, oh, okay, got it. We ruined everything. Let's do a better job now. Well, so slow down because we've tried that before, too, and done a really bad job about it. One of the things, Sarah, were you raising your hand? 
One of the things that I think that Cunningham said in his in his uh, in the second episode that I thought so compelling was when he talked about the um, uh, what is it Brown versus Board of Education? Is that the name of the case, the Topeka case? Did you want to speak to that, Dan? Okay, let me do this, and then, and then I'll call on you just a second, okay? So you guys fam- may, may know, it's a very, very well-known um, Supreme Court case where we, uh, where the Supreme Court ruled that we should integrate the schools, black and white, right? And there are things about that that you could look at that and say, well, that's a good idea. I'm glad that that decision went the way that it went. But Cunningham, in his critique of it, do you remember, do you remember his fundamental critique? What was wrong with the way that we did it? Becky? That's right. That's right. So there's this there's this sense of actually you're you're making assumptions about the quality of the schools. Those so schools, the, the blacks, the schools that the black students were attending were actually quality schools, and they wanted to be there, or many people wanted to be there, but then they were compelled to leave and to go in. And then there were there were specific things about the way that we did that that were bad, really bad news. Ruth Ellen. There's also commentary about you bring the children in, yes. but you have not done the same function with the leaders. Yes. You don't have the administrators and the teachers in a group. I think about it. So, so Ruth Allen's exactly right. Listen to this. He says... As a result, in some ways, the decision ironically compounded the problems by taking black students out of the schools where they were perfectly happy and loved and content and forced them to integrate into the strange and hostile world of white education. Check this out. What robust transitional justice would have called for, listen to this, this is is so obvious and yet escaped us, what robust transitional justice would have called for would be integration first and foremost of the gatekeepers of education, school boards, administrators, teachers. These should have been integrated first so that the black community would have a seat at the table of authority. This is the only way to cultivate an integrated culture that would not be hostile to black students. Instead, the reverse happened. Listen to this line. Black children were forced to adapt to white culture and bear the hostile weight of integration. So in the name of justice, transitional justice, we're going to allow slash compel black students to enter into the school. And the, mo- the weakest, the most vulnerable, the most easily injured are the, are the ones standing in the front of the line instead of having hey, let's slow this thing down. Let's make sure that we're going to have black school, black members on school boards, black teachers, black principals, black administrators that can speak with wisdom and kindness about how to approach this. Instead, we put a little, you know, 10-year-old in the front of the line. You can't you see his, like, okay, that seems, that seems, retrospectively, that seems really, really foolish. And so how do we do that well? Rachel? So Rachel says, for the, from the, looking at it from the psyche perspective of the child, if they're in this school and everybody in charge, or well, I should say nobody in charge looks like them, then that, that shapes your sense of, well, can I ever be 
the kind of person in charge. I heard, I heard a story of a, little, of a little boy in England. This would have been like in the 80s. And he asked, this is when Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister of Great Britain. And the child asked his, his, his parents, are men allowed to be prime minister too? Right? So even in this one little tiny narrow place where there was a woman in the head of state, he's like, well, I guess it's for women then, right? Never mind the total reality of human history in every other place in the world, right? And that's, that shows you like, that's, that's a reasonable assumption that a person would make, right? Yeah. Your kind wouldn't understand that. That was, and how old was he at the time? Five years old. So then, like, just like growing up with that mentality, but like, luckily, like, he was like, he's the middle child of seven. So his older sister, she's like grown thick skin. She grew up like that, obviously. So she then had to teach him at home, and then what to do in school because the teachers wouldn't tell him what to do. Yes. That sure does. Okay. So the story of a five-year-old boy. Um, who, who goes to school in a predominantly white school and, and gets an F on a coloring assignment. Did you give out Fs in kindergarten? That's, that's, a, that's a little harsh in the, right from the get-go, right? But an F on a coloring assignment at age five because he didn't color on the lines. And when he explained to the teacher, well, you didn't, I didn't know that's what you wanted. She's like, well, your kind wouldn't understand that, right? And so from, from this tall, right, he's, he's learning something that's woven into him is some sense of, one, that he's a kind, and then it's a kind that is subordinate to another kind. And that takes a little bit of work to overcome that, right? Especially if that message is being reinforced, okay? These are the sorts of things that we want to open our eyes to. But, but notice, too, it's not just that there's kinds of all kinds of problems, and they're not that long ago. Sometimes we'll say, like, come on, man, the Emancipation Proclamation was, like, in the 1860s. It's been 180, 160 years. Things are better now. We're not talking about things that were 160 years ago. Okay, we're, we're just not. But then take warning that once we recognize, okay, there's all kinds of problems. If we rush to make a solution, we could really blow the solutioning too, right? As, we, as, as in some ways, I think we may have done with the school integration. So these are things that we want to think well about. We want to we be eyes wide open. We want to have humility. We want to recognize that if we just think, okay, you know, I made the problem. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a solution. Well, you might not be wise enough to come up with a solution and perhaps we need spokespersons with lots of different voices that know things that we don't know, that could speak into the situation, and that together we might be able to come up with better solutions. Patrick. You know, it's, it's really interesting when we're talking about things that happened a long time ago. Uh, I never went to school with a black person in my entire life. My whole, uh, all the way through college, there were no black people in any of my classes. And uh, I never met a black person until I was in the army. And would you say when you were in, is that because, so there's, there's two issues there. One is what your college was like and the two what the army was like. And did you, what, what was your experience then when you were in, in the army? 
Well, it was just so foreign to me, and, and it was, it, you know, little things that <clears throat> surprised me so much <clears throat> when I was in the Army. Just a little story. We were out on bivouac, and, there, and, and I'd never been around black people and had certain things that I had learned through my culture. And I, there was a black person and a white person sitting on a bench together. And the white guy offered a sip out of his canteen to the black person. And I thought, oh my goodness. That, and then he took a sip. And, and it was just something I had never been exposed to. And you grew up with separate water fountains, yeah. yeah. So, and, and so with that background, and then since that time, all of the things I've seen and realized that I had learned early in my life all had to be changed around. That's right. And that process, every one of us, uh, whether it's on issues of race or any, you know, issues of theology, issues of family, issues of how men and women, I mean, pick a thing. We all learn things that are a mixture of good and bad, true and not true, and all throughout all of life. We, I drew these circles. Remember this? We drew these circles here a couple weeks ago of like, here's your brain. Here's the things you believe. There's truths and there's lies in your head. And what we're doing, part of maturity is replacing the lies with truth. Just cross them out. That's no longer, I don't, I don't believe that anymore. I've, something, I've seen something in God's word that has transformed my mind, and I'm going to replace these lies with truth. And some of those lies are in real deep. Some of them we don't know about. To be sure, there are things that I believe right now that are not accurate. I just don't know which things. Actually, that's not true. Some of the things that I know, but I'm still like, yeah, but I bet that's not true, right? You have these things in life. Like, I know that if I hit the lottery, it would ruin my life, but I'm pretty sure it would work out okay, right? You know, that's how that works. But, but then there's other things that are just like, man, I, just, I used to think that was so, and I had to be, had to be taught and trained and exposed. That's which is why we need to be gracious with each other and allow people, invite one another onto this process of replacing the lies that we believe with things that are true, okay? Now, because we've got to stop, um, Cunningham ends this episode, you've got to go back to episode two in your brain, with a single application. Does anybody recall what it is? There's lots of applications in part three, but in, ap in, in episode two, there's really just one, probably on the last page if you look at your notes. You remember what it was? A million things that we could do. There's one. It is. Anybody? No one, no one, no one? Stuart? Uh, it was, I think it was beyond admit. That would be the intellectual. There's more of an emotional component. And that was to care. All right? Now, I, I suppose you have to acknowledge. There's an So all of life, you can have intellect, emotion, and will. First of all, read one of these books. Just pick one. Read True Vine if you want to be, stay super local. Read... Uh, you know, the burning, Re read some things, know some things, like be like, oh man, I didn't know that. Like let some data, some truth in. But then number two here is where he's going is like, do you care? If I know that it's so, does this trouble me? Do I think it ought to be otherwise? And that's kind of where we're going to stop. Next week is going to be kind of the volitional. Okay, what do we do about it? If I think these things are true and if it troubles me, if I think that God is grieved that millions of people have been cheated with profound injustice. Lord, what, what do you want me to do? Like, is there something that I should do? Is there, some, is there a new system I should be part of? Uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a little bit of a clue that we, so what we said last time is that the prevailing ideas coming out of the kind of critical race theory camp 
have, I think, some pretty profound problems. And I'm not advocating that we jump onto that train. But there, there are other alternatives than going down this vision that I think is destructive and cannot ultimately be helpful and also just staying right where we are. And what I think Cunningham has some really great head, heart, hands applications. And we'll take a look at that for next week. And if you, if you go to it, go listen to it. Uh, Every Square Inch podcast, Racism in America, one, two, and three will be next, next week will be number three. But if you'd like to see the transcript of episode three, just email me. I'll be happy to send that to you if you'd rather have something to take notes on as you listen to it. Be more than happy to bounce it out to you. Okay? That's all we got. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.